You're listening to the Dangerous Prayer Sermon Series at Sojourn Church J-Town. In this series, we see how God invites us to grow in Christ-likeness and step into His mission as we learn to pray. Search us, break us, unite us, and send us. Yeah, how's everybody feeling after Christmas, huh? Post-Advent, and you showed up today, and I'm glad that you did. I'm glad that we're all here, and appreciate you joining us this morning. So, we are on the other side of Advent now, so what that means also is that we're going to be stepping into a new series as a church for the next few weeks, and the title of this series is going to be called Dangerous Prayers. Glad you came, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so over the next four weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're just going to be looking to the Psalms to explore some prayers that might not usually be prayed around the dinner table or prayed when you're on the road, getting ready to take a road trip. You know, the God bless this food, God bless our travels, now which are very useful and necessary daily prayers. But all we're, all we're doing is just trying to ask the question, like if that is what the majority of my prayer life looks like, am I, am I playing it pretty safe? Or maybe even the question, what does a prayer life look like that addresses a greater scope of all of our longings? And the hope is that it's going to equip us all as a church to to have these prayers that are not necessarily safe, but ones that will stretch us as God's church to flourish in 2020 and to experience God in a way that leads to a fuller life with Him and with others. And just full disclosure, like I cannot say 2020 without thinking of Barbara Walters. Like that has ruined me. So 2020. So that's the only time I'm going to say it. But to get us going in that direction today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 139 together. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn there, scroll there, flip there, tap there, whatever verb your particular Bible requires. Psalm is going to be at the center of the Bible, and this chapter is going to be toward the end of that psalm. So if you need a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. Words will also be on the screen and on your handout. So just want to invite you, if you're able, to please stand in honor of reading God's Word. And as we read this together, I also just want to invite all of us to, to take a posture of prayer as we go through this psalm together, and paying particular attention to verse 23. It's going to, going to be our focus toward the end. So hear the word of the Lord. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I mean, if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. And if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, well, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. 
Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, I'm still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. and Lead me in the everlasting way. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, we come to you today with the same request we make every week. God, we need your help. Our prayer is simple. Search us, God. Know our hearts. Test us and know our concerns. See if there is any offensive way in us. And lead us in the everlasting way. And we pray this in the name of the everlasting way, your son Jesus. Amen. Thanks, you may be seated. So, uh, so I got three daughters, 13, 12, and 7. There are a lot of things with my girls that remind me that I'm aging <laughs> and that I'm just not cool anymore. Um, particularly, it's with vernacular, slogans, sayings. You know, we, we've all had them depending on what generation you grew up in. So like back in my day, when I was in school, if we saw something cool, we'd look at it and might go, oh man, dude, that's sweet. You know, or back in my basketball playing days when I used to play well, which was years ago, might have a game and I was a shooting guard on the three-point line. This guy come up and guard me, put his hand in my face. I'd shoot the shot and bury it. And I might look at him and say, booyah, <laughs> in your face, right? Or, or tell me if you remember this one, like if you got in an argument, talk to the hand because the face don't understand, right? And I know some of you still say it. That's okay. That's all right. That's all right. But, but my girls are quick to tell me, and trust me when I say this, like none of those are cool anymore. And they will tell me in a heartbeat. It's totally not acceptable. They're like, Dad, look, 1990 called. Thought they buried all that. Put the shovel back in the shed, because I'm always trying to dig this up, man, but it just it won't work. So I've, I've had to be educated countless times. And one of the things that one of my girls said to me one morning, I was dropping her off at the bus stop, just routine Bus stop drop-off kind of day. We pull up, bus pulls up, do what I always do. I lean over and give her a hug, kiss on the forehead, and I say, baby, you have a good day today. And she looks at me with a twinkle in her eye, and she said, Dad, you slay the day. <laughs> slay the day? I will absolutely do that. <laughs> and thank you, because you've given me another one to say. Every day, every day. And I, and I do. I still say it all the time. Like when I'm getting ready to leave the house, to this day, I might look at my kids when they're up, and I'll get ready to walk out, and I'll say, girls, daddy's out of here. Go slay the day. 
And they look at me and they go, no dad, you slay the day. And then I'm like, yes, I will. <laughs> and for a moment, I feel cool again. And so I'll keep saying it until they tell me it's not cool anymore. And I'm not cool anymore and whatever, I don't, I don't care. But there are, there are some sayings that I think have stood the test of time, regardless of what generation you've grown up in. Some that I've said, maybe you have too. Things like, you know, just not myself today. Or look, I, I just I don't know what got into me. Or how about, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I did, I did not mean what I said. You know, and even if we don't say these things out loud, I think we recognize at some point that, that there is certainly something that is off inside each of us and something that we are not okay with. You know, we, we have this tendency... I know I do, to, to every now and again live this what was I thinking kind of life. And with that, there's a constant desire that this thing that's off needs to be addressed. And, and sure, we all have good days and bad days, right? We've talked about that many times before. That's certainly relatable for all of us. But something I find that's, that might be even deeper and maybe just as relatable are the days where, man, I've just straight slayed it, Right? I mean, I know that God is absolutely near and active and intimate. I mean, everything's going well. There's high fives, bro hugs all day long. But I lay my head on that pillow at night. And there's something deep within me that is anxious still. Stress heavy, even. I mean, God, I did all the things. I do all the things. So, so what gives? Regardless of how the day goes, there seems to be this, this nag, this quicksand, this sludge of life. I mean, even if on our good days, that heaviness is still there, what are we to do with that? And could David be wondering this too? I mean, King David of the Bible? Do we know who we're talking about here? I mean, this, if you're not too familiar with David, he's the man after God's own heart. Right? He's anointed as, as king at a young age, skillful musician, mighty man of valor, warrior. He's handsome. I mean, anytime this dude spoke, honey just came out of his mouth. Not literally, but you, you know what I'm saying. Like it, everything he did prospered. This dude outside of Christ was arguably the GOAT. Greatest of all time. Got to keep my cool points in check, right? You got it? Just taught you something. But on the surface, this guy, he's stellar. I mean, there's no anxiety, no stress. But, as with all of us in this veneer that we tend to project from time to time, there's more to the story. There's a stingingly sad story in 2 Samuel, where David has had a child with Bathsheba. The child becomes very sick. David cries out to the Lord about this. He fasts, mourns face to the floor, doesn't sleep, just begging God to save this child, only to find out that the child didn't make it. He, he was hunted and threatened by a guy named Saul because Saul's jealousy of David threw him into a blind rage. I mean, David ran and feared for his life for what was believed to have been years. He had all these external circumstances plaguing him, but there was also something deep inside that caused him trouble. I mean, he committed adultery. He deceived. He conspired. He murdered to save his own skin. I mean, he feared 
and he was anxious. And look, all of this occurred while David had a knowledge and belief about God. And this is where we find David in this psalm. I mean, the veneer is gone. He lays it all out there. And this is an intensely personal psalm between David and God. He's, he's recognizing the glory and beauty of God, the truth of who God is. And at the same time, he recognizes the reality of what he sees and what he experiences just doesn't add up to this truth. There's an offness within him that needs to be addressed by someone that is not him. So last week we talked about change and the pain that is closely associated with that. So the direction I want to try to go this week is just to kind of complement that same thought. Because I think what we see here with David in this psalm is a deep desire for that change. And on top of that, a courage to ask God to do it in a way that only God can do. So a great theologian of old by the name of John Calvin once argued that one cannot truly know God without knowing oneself, and one couldn't truly know oneself without knowing God. And I think what he means by that is that what we believe about God shapes what we believe about ourselves, and what we believe about ourselves shapes what we believe about God. And what we believe matters immensely because it, it shapes our values, and it shapes the way that we live in the world with God, with others, and even the way we relate to ourselves. And I think we see all of this playing out in this psalm. So we're going to first look at three sections that are broken up pretty well between verse 1 and verse 18. And then we'll focus on 19 to 24 and our response to that. So David begins in verses 1 through 6 reflecting on God's knowledge of him. And as we've already discussed, and we now see from verse 1, which we read earlier, that he is not coming to God with a clean slate kind of mentality. All right? I mean, he's already experienced the ebb and flow of life from top to bottom, from left to right. And he comes to, that, to God in that and says, look, you've searched me. You know me. You, you know my glories. You know my sin. There's nothing about me and my decisions that you don't know. And he's acknowledging that God is a God of precise understanding, that he also has a perfect intelligence of every posture, gesture, and pursuit. He knows the conditions of our lives, both now and in the past. And not only that, he has a perfect acquaintance with every emotion, every feeling, thought, doubt, he has a knowledge of your physical location, both public and private. Nothing is said that hasn't always been known, and you can do nothing and suffer nothing without being seen. He knows all that makes up the history of you. You're fully known, completely known by God. Now this might land on you in a uh-oh kind of way. Maybe not. But what we also see is that you're not only known fully, but if we look at verse 5, David says this. He says, God, you have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty and I'm unable to reach it. So he doesn't just end with being known. He says that you are encircled, that God's hand is on you. You're always being tended to. You're not just known. You're intimately known. And how else can David come to God in his current state unless he knows this to be true about God, that, that God continues to know David in spite of his history? And to David, this is essentially incomprehensible. And, and 
I think this, this might tap into the feels, right? I mean, it, I think we all have a longing to know and to be known, but most of the time, if we're honest, it's only within safe limits. We, we have a fear of being totally exposed. But when the perfect knowing of God is in play, and in His grace, He continues to know you, fear not. There's nothing to hide. David then turns his reflection to God's presence with him in verses 7 through 12. He goes on to say that all of life, all of life is in direct and immediate notice of God. He not only occupies our physical space that we can see, he also occupies the spaces we can't see. He uses a really weird word here, sheol. Now at that time, that was just understood to be the place of the dead. So all that's saying is that, look, there are no boundaries for God. He is not limited by distance. That doesn't exist for him. Although at times we want to hide from God and use darkness as our cover, God sees. And it's not because he's nocturnal. He sees because there's absolutely no hindrance to his vision. Light and dark are a non-factor when it comes to God's sight. Again, there might be a uh-oh kind of response to this, but Maybe not. But again, as we see in verse 10, what David says here is, God, even there, wherever there is, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. So even in this pervasive presence of God, His hand is with you, leading you, holding on to you. God is not just present. He's intimately present present. Then after reflecting on the vastness of God, his absolute knowledge, absolute presence of everyone, everything, everywhere, every time, he then further reflects on God's intimacy with him in 13 through 18. God knows the most secret parts of us. David is astonished at the creation of the human body and all the intricacies involved. If we had time, there are some awesome stats on what makes this up. I'm not going to go into it. David compares this intimacy with something that I could totally not do, knitting. Never tried it. If I did, I'm either taking my eye out or somebody else's. But I've seen it. And, and when knitting is happening, if you watch it, there's someone there with all this just stray yarn. These two needles in and out, weaving, weaving together. Something I had a hard time finding when I was looking at this stuff was somebody that was in the act of knitting while their head was like this. When knitting is happening, there's a total focus on what's in front of you. God is focused on you. He's not haphazard. Everything is planned beforehand. Not one human body was made in a hurry David is in essence saying, God, you know me from the contours of my face down to my anatomic structure. You made my outsides and my insides carefully and intentionally. You ever heard the expression, well, somebody had a hand in this. God is the only one that had a hand in the shaping and forming of all of who you are. He had a hand in that. He doesn't put you on a conveyor belt when he makes you and sends you out to the masses either. 
Because we see in verse 18, David says, God, when I wake up, I am still with you. Every morning, every day, how much, how much more intimate can you get? As big and as great as God is, in the morning, He's still with you. So what we see David doing here in these first 18 verses, he's, he's coming from a lifetime full of good and bad days. And this is an intentional prayer and an intentional reminder of the truth and the reality of who God is. In spite of circumstances, and in spite of what the world and others seem to scream in opposition. And I'm, I'm probably making a bit of a stretch here, but I think we might be able to see this in a minute. I feel like he's doing this because it's so easy to believe the alternative. It's so easy to believe more in the reality of what we see and what we hear both around us and inside of us. And and look, I need to hear these verses because I do the same thing. And maybe, just maybe, what David is doing here is speaking against some common whispers that we all might hear. No one knows me. Totally alone. And if those two things are true, no one knows me and I'm totally alone, then, then what value do I have? And when we get into the throes of life and we start experiencing realities that seem to directly contradict the goodness and greatness of God, it is easy to believe in those whispers. And what ends up happening is we, come into, we become intimate with fear and anxiety instead of becoming intimate with God. And this can play out in a variety of ways. I mean, you might have had a job interview receive word that you didn't receive the position that you've longed for for so long. Those whispers might start coming and you hear, man, you have no value here. No one else wanted, they, they wouldn't have lost that job. And you've wanted this position for so long. Does God really know you? And if he does, does he even really care? Or maybe even, you know what, no one ever notices me. If, if only they would see how much I can bring to the table. I might feel appreciated for once. Do you even see me, God? Do you know that I'm here? Or one that I hear in my own heart from time to time. I'm a child of a broken home. My dad left when I was seven. And to this day, I have a hard time not believing some of those whispers I hear. Like, Tony, you are alone. You, you just weren't good enough, man. Not valuable enough. You're going to have to figure this out on your own, boy. And better step it up for the rest of your life because you've got to make sure that if you love anyone else, then you do enough to keep them from leaving you. Get it together, Tony. And these circumstances that we experience, and there are many more. In a room of this size, there are many more stories that go along with that. They are very real, and they are very painful. They, they end up leaving us anxious. And what I found in my own life leads me to fear in living the life of a victim of circumstance. And, and I'm not saying that we will be totally deaf to those whispers in this life, that because we believe in God and who He says He is, and we believe in Christ and fulfilling all of what God 
has said that, that every doubt, fear, tear, suffering, pain, all that's going to come to a full stop. That's not what I'm saying. Because every tear and pain is a result of sin in our own lives and the sin that we see around us. And we live in close quarters with that every day and will continue to do so until our full rescue is complete in Christ. But what I am saying, and this is the reason we need this psalm, why I need this psalm, is because the, the, the temporary reality that we've experienced up to this point in life, according to what we know of who God is, it will totally turn to dust and get blown away by the wind of the voice of the permanent reality of who God is and how He sees you. You are known fully. You have no other option than to be totally transparent with God because there's nothing about you that He doesn't know. And look, this is good news because even in his knowing about you and all of who you are, he doesn't back away. His hand is still on you. And Jesus, speaking in similar intimate language in John, says that I am the good shepherd. You are my own and my own know me. And in the entirety of your being, past, present, and future, you are known fully and intimately and you are still loved. You are never alone. Ever. God notices you. Even when we want to hide and when we want the darkness to cover us, when we believe that there is no one in the world that understands our situation, we feel completely abandoned. God is with you. And this is good news because wherever there is for you, His hand is leading you. Look, His, his hand is holding on to you. And He will not let go. And Jesus says again in John, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. He is and will be intimately present with you. And look, you have value. You have value. There are no accidents when it comes to God. There is no second thought. There is a specific intricacy in your making that is fashioned by the hands of God. There's no oops, no mistake, no clerical errors. Praise God. The gospel affirms all of these and wraps these up in Jesus. He 100% knows you physically, spiritually, emotionally, and because he's 100% God and 100% man, this is warm soup for the winters of your soul because the only perfect human knows you well and has experienced what you have experienced. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in a translation of a verse in Hebrews. He says, we don't have a high priest who is out of touch with our reality. Say it again. We don't have a priest who is Jesus that is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all, all but the sin. And here's the invitation. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. Thank God for that. We might all have a sense of living life as victims of circumstances and the sin that we deal with on a daily basis, but but our hope is that 
what David knows about God here, we know of the fulfillment of all of this in the person of Jesus Christ. He was totally misunderstood. Like when he was brought before Pilate, he got questions. And this wasn't an interrogation like you see on TV on these crime show series. He walks up to Pilate moments before a decision to send him to his death, and Pilate goes, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, what have you done? In essence, he's saying, I don't know you. And Jesus became the unknown so that you can be fully known. While he was experiencing the most excruciating of circumstances hanging on a cross, he cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the most isolating of moments on the cross so that you will never be alone. He was stripped of his dignity and worth and value in the eyes of the world so that you can be given immeasurable value. He became a victim for all of us so that victimhood does not have the final say. Church, you are known. You are not alone. And you have immeasurable value. You are loved more than you could ever hope. So what do we do when we find that hard to believe? After all this reflection on God, His knowledge, His presence, His intimacy, David then goes on to say this, verses 19 through 22. God, kill all the wicked. I hate them. They're my enemies. I hate them because I hate you. Be done with it. So we're reading through these first 18 verses. We get to the 19th verse and go, well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> I mean... All of what David says before is this grand, beautiful worship in the most poetic way. I mean, in my mind, as the words before this are being said, and if there's a visual soundtrack to go along with it, welcome to my brain, I can, I can see someone sitting in an open meadow in the middle of the forest. You know, it's sunny, 68 degrees outside. There's a person sitting on a perfectly level and cushiony tree stump. Maybe playing an old acoustic guitar. I don't know. There's a bubbling brook in the background with salmon just joyfully jumping out of the water to the tune of the music. There might even be some dolphins somewhere else in a nearby body of water just playing with each other, you know. Birds are singing just because. Butterflies are flying all over the place. Guy on the stump pauses, belly laughs, takes a sip of antioxidant tea. You're just worshiping God and enjoying a harmonious life. Then all of a sudden, verse 19 happens. And everything gets dark immediately. The pleasant sounds stop. The salmon hide underwater. The birds and the butterflies disappear. The guitar gets set down. Wolves begin to creep out of the woods. And they're left alone and blind on this stump. That's not where this story is supposed to go, right? Or is it? I mean, is that not life sometimes? You know, things are going along swimmingly, and then the hammer drops out of nowhere. 
And when it does, our response can tend to get pretty ugly. There's a helpful uh, Old Testament scholar that looked at these verses, and I think what he says is really, really helpful here. He says, The Psalms explore the full gamut of human experience, from rage to hope. Indeed, it would be very strange if such a robust spirituality lacked such a dimension of vengeance. In praying psalms filled with hate, vengeance, and the call for retaliation, we learn that our hate belongs only in one place, the presence of God. We bring our anger and hate and frustration to God regarding other people or your enemies, and we leave our hate with God. Vengeance is not simply a psychological but a theological matter. It must be referred to God. And when vengeance is entrusted to God, the speaker is relatively free from its power. And in what this scholar calls the cathartic exchange, he says we express our rage and receive the peace of God in exchange for our hate. David is certainly expressing some vengeance here. God, I know all this about you is true, but there's a lot going on in the world that calls you a liar. You can't let this continue. I mean, eliminate the evil coming toward me. Eliminate the evil going toward you. I agree with all of your ways. So why is this still happening? Right about now, you may be thinking something I thought reading through this. Like, whoa, Dave. Hit the brakes, bro. I mean, doesn't Jesus say to love our enemies? And to pray for those that harm us? Another writer says something here that I think is helpful. He says, I imagine Jesus responding to David saying, Dave, we need to talk about this hate business. The Father is actually kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You need to leave this hate with me. Jesus shows us the way through the Psalms to direct our feelings of rage towards God so we are freed to love. In this way, the only space we find for hate is in the presence of God, where it is spoken and where it evaporates in light of God's love. The kindness of our God to put this in the Bible. I mean, if we did not have a place for these thoughts, these emotions, these responses to our experiences, what kind of good news could the gospel truly be? There's a safe space for this, too, in Jesus. I mean, we, we give it to Him, and the crazy part about it is that He turns it on its head and gives us peace and love in exchange. And we see that in the cross, don't we? I mean, the, most, the symbol of the most brutal of death sentences in the Roman era. And Jesus takes that, turns it on its head into a symbol of hope. Only Jesus can do those things. And if this prayer were to stop right here, what we're left with is, God, you're awesome, and the ones that oppose you are not. So go ahead and do what's right and get rid of it all. And by the way, I'm on your side. I'm not your enemy. I've been wrong too, man. I got your back. But the psalm doesn't stop there. Look at the beauty that comes from these ashes. Verse 23 and 24, David says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me 
and lead me in the everlasting way. So immediately after this ugly goes outside, David turns inside. And I think a good summary of what David is trying to get across here comes from a response to a question that was believed to have been posted in a publication back in the early 1900s. This is not verifiable, but fitting, so I'm going to use it. This publication posed a question, and a Catholic thinker by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote a brief letter in response. And the question was simply, what is wrong with the world today? Chesterton's response was simply, Dear sirs, I am. David's response to this darkness, this sin, is, wait a minute, could this darkness be in me? I'm just using my imagination here, but perhaps David had Jeremiah 17.9 in mind, where it says the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? David knows there are deep places within him that he cannot see. That there is a knowing that he needs that he does not have. And can only receive this sight and this knowing from the only one who can see and know it clearly. Your creator God. And you know, I read this and I see where David is going and I give it a hearty amen. But here's the irony in that. In my own life, uh, when things break, I take them to get fixed. No, that doesn't happen. When things break, I try to fix it. Yeah, and it works out about 97% of the time. It doesn't work out. It works out against me. All right, so like plumbing. Might be a hairline crack on the bottom of a plumbing pipe, which isn't good because gravity. And I patch it up. Everything's fine. And three weeks later, there's water all over the kitchen floor. And I walk in, and I'm like, what happened? I thought I fixed it. Then my wife, Annette's on the other side of the room going, mm-hmm, yeah, right. I knew you wouldn't. Um, and she's right, I don't. It's, it's always a failure. But then after that, I call a plumber who knows the intricacies of the plumbing system, and he comes by and fixes it, and guess what? No probs. He got it. Took care of it. Now, most of you are probably much wiser than me, and you take it straight to someone who knows what they're doing. So like your phone screen breaks, you go right over to Hurstbourne, and you break, I fix. You walk in, screen's broken, and voila, new screen, because they know what they're doing with that. Or AC, your heater goes out. Uh, HVAC technician, can you come to my house, please? They know what they're doing. They get it fixed up. So I'm saying all that because what I find odd is that when it comes to my heart and my soul, it either goes unaddressed or I step in myself. When there is a good, loving, intimate creator God who's wired up all of the intricacies of a human. I mean, I can't even make a decent PB&J. But when those things pop up, I go to me. What God is showing us here, and, and this gift He's giving us in this prayer, is that to get the deep healing that you need, the deep healing that, that I need, is for God to do the deep searching that only He can do. So what I want to wrap up with is something I think we see God offering us in this psalm, a gift, an antidote for anxieties perhaps, a way that God speaks into the most secret parts of us in order to hear us. And it's in this prayer that we see in verse 23. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me 
know my concerns. And our response to this prayer and to all of this is pretty simple, but pretty daunting, right? I mean, we, when we pray, search us, what we're doing is, is basically just saying to God, what is going on in me? And there's going to be some ugly that comes out of that. Because we're inviting God to, to let us know, like, if I'm, am I, why am I so angry all the time? Is it because of unmet expectations? Why, why am I always jealous of someone else's life? Because they have the life that I want to live. Like, what is deep within you? We invite God to reveal to us what it is that we long for, fear, and hope to find significance in. And to put it simply, we can't be healed from what we don't know is ailing us. Many of us in this room, myself certainly included, are anxious and we haven't taken the time to deeply evaluate the root of our anxieties and how God and the gospel addresses them. I mean, we're afraid of losing so many things. And this prayer is an invitation for the Holy Spirit to search us to reveal what it is that we fear the most and where we trust God the least. While this prayer is dangerous, also very powerful. So all I want to do is give us three things to help us think through what that is as we reflect on this psalm and as we step into this prayer. Because what we see David doing here, he's trying to understand himself here in relation to God. And a complete knowing of ourself in relation to God includes knowing three things that we can keep in mind when we pray this prayer. Number one is, you are deeply loved. You have to start there. That's where David starts, reflecting on God and who he is and his love for him. That's where we start, reflecting on God and who he is and his love for us that we have seen fully in the gospel and in Christ. Number two, you are deeply sinful. I am deeply sinful. And it's safe to reflect on this because you are deeply loved. We can admit the darkness in our hearts and ask God to search those and root those out because we know that He loves us. And as we step into this, the third thing is understanding this is a deep, ongoing process of being redeemed and restored through the difficult but kind work of the Holy Spirit made possible through Jesus. It is a long, deep process, and it is going to sting. But what we do when we face these deep truths about ourselves, it makes it possible for us to accept and know ourselves as we are accepted and known by God. It's spending time with God for God to meet you where you are and help you to know yourself as you are known. And another author puts it this way that I think is helpful. The self you seek to know is already known and deeply loved by God. We can step into this prayer with confidence because although God is great and God is glorious and He is so other than us, He still profoundly cares for each one of you. I mean, we see that in Jesus. He came to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that none of us want to die in order that He can give us the life that we long for in Him and with Him. 
Great author by the name of Tim Keller puts it this way, if the suffering that Jesus endured did not make him give up on us, then nothing will. He profoundly cares for you. God doesn't reveal our sin, our failures, and our shortcomings to crush us, but rather to heal us by reminding us of who we are in Him and to Him. So Christian, you can, you can pray this prayer knowing that Jesus has come to set you free. To remind you in your anxieties that He knows you fully, that He's present with you completely, and that He came to continually show you your immeasurable worth and value. He is in the business of redemption and restoration. Ask Him to search you and step into that work with Him for the sake of His glory and for the good of the life that you long for. If you're not a Christian, the invitation is the same. Pray this prayer. Ask God to, show, to search you and to show you where do you find your worth and value. Ask God to show you Jesus and how your longings are met fully in the gospel. He went to extreme depths to show you that you are known, you are not alone, and you have immeasurable value. Are you just not feeling like yourself today? As we said last week, God has a plan, He has a promise, and He has a power to deliver on both. The search is on. Take the mercy, accept the help, and let's step into this healing together. Pray with me, please. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.